Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to our second part of the Napoleon Life and Times. And I'm joined here once again with Zach White. And this time we are going to focus heavily on the Napoleonic Wars. But before we go into the wars itself, I want to begin where we left off the last time, which is the crowned coronation of the Emperor Napoleon. And I want to begin a little bit, because I want to talk about Josephine as well, because there was quite a dilemma and discussion, should she be at the coronation, should she not be? So it seemed to me that a lot of people resented that she should not be you know, at the coronation, but she did end up being there. So let's t- talk a little bit about the mess or not mess but the leading up to the coronation and the coronation itself sure the josephine situation is always going to be complex not least because there are she's not popular with a lot of bonaparte's family um in part that's perhaps because of the affairs obviously bonaparte's um, own family quietly ignoring his own affairs and actually encouraging him to have his own affairs there's also a lot of concern about whether or not she can actually have kids um and as we start to transition towards empire that kid question becomes ever more significant because now it's about hereditary succession rather than um just well look there isn't a a little napoleon running around the place um there's a bit of a an issue as well in terms of the fact that their marriage was a civil ceremony and not a church ceremony and as a result of that there's a lot of kind of there are a lot of questions about whether or not she whether the marriage is valid in front of god and um she she sort of plays a bit of a blinder by managing to get the pope to turn around and say look i can't crown the two of you if you haven't been married before god and so she um effectively secures this stay of execution by when it comes to her marriage because you know there's always this kind of movement and these machinations against her she secures this sort of stay of execution of the demise of their marriage by getting herself married in a church ceremony um the night before the coronation so that then they can both be crowned the following day um the coronation is very much napoleon it's it's napoleon doing it his way and this is what comes through very clearly in the snippets that we've seen um, leaked and and released in advance you know this idea of napoleon crowning himself he's sending a very emphatic message mm. um there's a there are sources to suggest that some of that was agreed beforehand but at the same time the so this idea that napoleon would crown himself rather than the pope crowning him but at the same time he is sending a message about who is more important in that relationship and it's part of this ongoing kind of fight that he has yeah. with the vatican um, but he is effectively saying, I am emperor of the French. That is a really important distinction. He's not emperor of France. He's in the emperor of the French. He obviously legitimizes this with his plebiscite. We talked, I think, last time about um, Napoleonic democracy and its inverted commas flaws. Um, it is there, but it is sometimes used as a veneer to, to give legitimacy to the government. And so when he's doing this, he's kind of saying, look, things are done differently. I am crowning myself. I'm not reliant on the Pope. I'm not reliant on God. I have fought my way to this point, and I am claiming this crown on behalf of the French people. And that's a very powerful and important message. There is a marked shift from 
other authoritarian regimes in Europe during this period? And now I, I want to introduce two people, and one is more important than the other, of course, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but for those who may not know, there was two sly little bastards that joined the Napoleonic court, and one of them is Forche, who would somehow survive both the Napoleonic and the Bourbon government, and the, one, the other one is another sly little bastard who would betray, but as one of his biographers pointed out, one of his many biographers pointed out that he had his reasons to betray Napoleon eventually. He tried to make him listen to him. And of course, that is Talleyrand who eventually would betray. I mean, we'll come back to Talleyrand, of course, after Austerlitz. But let's talk a little bit about, about these two fly little bastards, as I call them. Sure. Do we have a swear filter on this show? No. 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 Okay, so people will like this. Napoleon referred to Talleyrand as a shit in a silk stocking so there you go that's the, clearly they didn't get along <laughs> terribly well on occasion um but napoleon knows he needs him there's a really good analogy that i sometimes use about how it's better to have somebody inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent yeah. pissing in yeah. now sometimes i suspect napoleon felt that Talleyrand was inside the tent pissing in which is obviously the worst of all <laughs> worlds um <laughs> but i think Part of the thing with Talleyrand, he, so he has a long history. He survives the revolution by being very delicate in, in how he plays his steps. I think that Talleyrand is interested in what he considers to be two things. Firstly, I think he's probably more focused on what he regards as France's interests rather than Napoleon's, which obviously is problematic for Napoleon. Um, but also, I think Talleyrand is very interested in Talleyrand's interests. Mm. And so he is somebody who comes in and out of office. So he does resign on occasion when he has concerns, particularly about Napoleon's ambition, about whether or not what he's planning is feasible, whether it's going to lead to stability. Um, but he's always there. He's always floating in the background, offering advice even after he's resigned. He's one of these whisperers behind the thrones, kind of a, a bit of a spider. who's sort of there with, with all the threads, trying to control things just enough to keep France the way he thinks France should be. And this is not that unusual um you've also got people like metternich during this period the austrian um mm. politician who is also playing devious little games on occasion when it suits him um and then we mentioned fouché so fouché is widely regarded as a very sinister character in france during this period he's in charge of the state police and it's important to remember napoleonic france is a dictatorship and that isn't unusual during this period because absolutist monarchies are themselves dictatorships and that was very much the norm um as we said already democracy is kind of the veneer that gives everything legitimacy um but together fouché and napoleon basically write the playbook on state control which is then used after the war by other nations to implement their own secret police and, and state controls because it is so effective. So Fouché has spies seemingly everywhere. And he does, all... as I said, he does survive both Napoleonic regime and as well the Bourbon. So he must do something right. Absolutely, because he makes himself so vital. A nice analogy for people who've seen Game of Thrones would be Varys, that master mm. of whisperers, you know, with his little birds yeah. everywhere. Very similar principle in that. You know, Fouché is able to produce daily reports 
to put on Napoleon's desk about what has been said in certain locations in Paris. He's also getting feeders from the wider um, wider France. So he is the person who is helping Napoleon to keep control of France for the, the reasons of, of stability for Bonaparte's regime. And mm. um, before we go into the Napoleonic Wars, of course, I want to talk about there's about Napoleon's work ethic because they were rather unusual, you might say, and especially for his unfortunate secretary who would be awakened middle of the night. He slept very little, Napoleon. I mean, the few times he took a break, it was just a few hours bath, and he hardly slept at all. And what I want to emphasize is that he did, at least in the beginning, he began doing quite well as a dictator, and he did, and for, he controlled the grain and the economics, and he, of course, the army as well. He, he did, and of course, it's because of Napoleon that we have this two-street system as well that he organized that's one of the first times I believe, according to a Swedish historian, that we has have this two street system that five on one side and six on the other. You, you know what I mean? Not street numbers. So I mean, he began at least very good in governing the that French state. Yeah, absolutely. Napoleon. I mean, we focus a lot on his political career, um, perhaps inevitably because that's what sort of seems to capture a lot of people's imagination and it excites them that little bit more, but. In the early stages, Napoleon is really beneficial to France. You've got to think about the anarchy of the revolution. You have a series of attempts to create constitutions that fall through. You've got increasingly radical factions for much of it trying to gain control. Um, Napoleon brings stability, and that's important. The The challenge, of course, becomes when post, I would say, 1805, he then starts to think outwards. Um, but before that point, I would actually say that Napoleon is the man that France needs at that moment in time. His Napoleonic code lasts to this day in a number of um, instances. It is the foundation for the French legal system. It's then exported around the world. It is reasonably progressive for the time. It was also sorely needed because France had different laws in different sections of the country. So in some places you could exempt yourself from tax completely. Um, and in others, you had to pay huge amounts of tax. It, it was a huge mess. And Napoleon resolves that with his code. The code isn't entirely positive. It reinstitutes slavery, which had been abolished during the revolution. It also enshrines in the state a huge misogyny, which people will say, well, that was typical of the time to a degree. But it was, again, a step backwards from the rights that women had gained during Mm -hmm. the revolution. So we have this complexity with Napoleon's life where on the one hand, his reforms were definitely needed, but at the same time, about half the population of France probably ended up worse off from his rule in, in legal rights than um, than benefited because the, the system of patriarchy that gets built into French law basically makes it incredibly hard for women to run their own lives. They require their husband's permission for many things. It's I think difficult. Ken would approve of the patriarchy. Sorry, I didn't catch that. I, th- I think Ken would approve of the patriarchists. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. There's a nice <laughs> little Barbie reference in there for people. Um, but yeah, for his work ethic, he was incredibly, incredibly motivated. He also had, as you say, an ability to work through the light, through the night, could wear out multiple secretaries with his letter writing, could pivot from 
writing a letter to a bereaved mother in one moment through to um, a letter to the Austrian emperor and then on to dictating a new law um, and then turning again to write on military matters about how depots needed to be resupplied. An incredible capacity there that is phenomenal. There is a question mark over whether the fact that he went on so little sleep might have contributed to his cognitive decline, because we know that you need sleep in mm. order to work. Um, we can only speculate on that. But certainly in the early years of his life, he was absolutely phenomenal um, in terms of that work ethic and what he produced. So let's begin with the beginning of the Napoleonic War and what led up to because I believe, and I might be wrong here, but again, a Swedish historian who wrote an excellent biography on Napoleon as well, he claims that in really the most people declared, Napoleon never really declared war on anyone. There was other nations. I don't know how right he is, but now that other nations declared war on him, I don't know that it was more a defensive war in a sense, sort of, but how this right is, is a, he on this? Yeah, this is a particular school of thought. Napoleon is the man of peace. And mm. you can make a certain argument that um, what happens quite often is that other nations become disgruntled and then declare war on Napoleon. Now, it doesn't work universally. It certainly does work in relation to Waterloo, but Waterloo will get to it's a different kind of set of circumstances. When it comes to other wars, um, the invasion of Russia is a preemptive strike because he knows war is coming, but he does make the first move. Um, the one that you can't explain away is what he does to Portugal and Spain, starting off the Peninsula War. Yeah. So in 1807, he decides that he's going to implement the continental system, going to shut all of the ports in Europe to British trade and sort of starve Britain into submission. Nice idea, but he is trying to dictate the economic policy of an entire continent. And that therefore means that independent nations need to toe the line. So when Portugal, a long-standing ally of Britain, turns around and goes, um, thanks, but we're good. You know, we, we decide our own economic policy in our own country that's not controlled mm. by you. So bye. Um, they get threatened with invasion. Quite simply, you're going to do it my way or I'm going to occupy you and make you do it anyway. There's a lot of sort of toing and froing. Eventually, the Portuguese agree and then he invades anyway. And then he mm. follows up having moved a lot of troops into Spain under that kind of pretext of I've mm. got an invasion of Portugal coming. He then stabs his ally Spain in the back, takes control of the, <laughs> excuse me, the literally captures, um, makes prisoner the, um, the, the king of Spain and his heir, invites them to Fontainebleau on a pretext that he's going to try and sort out disagreements between the two of them. And then basically says, none of you are fit for running the country I'm taking control. And that kicks off the what the um, Spanish call the Guerra de la Independencia, the War of Independence, where they are trying to fight mm. against a French occupation under, excuse me, Napoleon's brother, um, Joseph. So, yeah, let's talk about Joseph's rule for a second, because it, he was not his brother. And he was, I'm not sure he even wanted to rule Spain, because though he was a power, he was not competent at all for ruling Spain. The the big problem for French control of Spain, excuse me, sorry about this, is that um, you need a strong figure it, in overall command, directing strategy when the country rises up, and you mm. don't have that. 
And as a result, what you have is a series of marshals jockeying for position, sometimes refusing to cooperate or refusing to take orders from somebody who's been appointed to a higher rank than themselves um, because they feel aggrieved. And nobody's listening to Joseph because Joseph is not the strong figure. Joseph was the wrong appointment, quite frankly. Um, I can understand why he'd had success elsewhere, um, but this is kind of an indication of some of the cronyism that sometimes underpins Napoleon's rule, that he will take people that he believes he can trust and starts to try and create his own European dynasty by plopping his various um, siblings and their spouses onto other European thrones and creating well, satellite Weren't he also the one who was supposed to study to be a Catholic priest at some point, or was that another brother? No, absolutely. You've got we've well, got a number of brothers in that family. You've got Lucian as well. Lucian, um, very key in helping Napoleon, as we discussed last time during the Brumaire coup. Mm. And I want to talk about his family again as as well, because uh, he does marry off his sisters as well, and I do believe one of them marry off a boar and a transvestite as well at the time, which you know, it was it was not a match in heaven. I'm not sure if I get this right, but I do. I mean, one of them at least marry a, someone she that is, is not does not fancy very well. I'm not remember, sure, don't remember where I read it. It was someone else on my team drop, but I do believe it. I'm not familiar not with that particular match. one. I mean, Caroline ends up with Muriel, yeah. which is a match made in yeah. hell. They deserve each other, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> it's it's a tumultuous relationship. In fact, Muriel is part of the reason why the um, situation in, in Spain explodes so badly during the start of the Peninsula War, because he, there's a, a revolt in the Spanish capital, Madrid, and um, a couple of French soldiers are killed because what's happening is that these people are rioting over the fact that their royal family has been snapped up and made prisoner in France. You can kind of understand why they might have problems with that, um, Spain being a particularly proud nation as well. And... Yet, Murat's response when some French soldiers are killed is to have every drop of blood paid for in blood. And so he clears the streets, rounds up anybody who's found with a weapon in their hands and executes them. And this it just fans the flames because the news of this gets out. It's treated like a, a cold-blooded massacre, which in some respects, you know, these people are being shot in cold blood. Um, and effectively by being too authoritarian, it creates a propaganda coup for the cause of Spanish independence that then just ignites across the country. And of course, Britain mm. looks at this and goes, this is a perfect opportunity to exploit because Britain's mm. still at war with Napoleon during this point. Um, so yes, it is the case if we double back to what we'd originally raised that um, you can make the argument that at times Napoleon didn't... Um, didn't necessarily want war particularly in 1815 when he comes back why doesn't he want war there's a very simple answer for that he's not ready for it mm. which then begs the question if napoleon keeps winning these wars which he obviously does right we all know about napoleon's military successes whether it's Auschwitz, whether it's jena and Auerstadt, whether it's friedland mm. um whether it's wagram uh, he has this succession of victories so why is there this inclination for these states to turn around and go, hey, let's go to war with Napoleon. You know, we haven't we haven't been hammered by him for, mm. I don't know, 18 months, two years, three years. That will be fun, won't it? 
Well, the reason is because of the peace settlements. Because Napoleon is so good at waging war, it means that he can demand everything that he wants. He can dictate the peace. And because of that ability to dictate the peace, you have the power to ask for too much. If you're in a position of negotiation, you have to compromise. And with that compromise comes a better degree of understanding. With Napoleon extracting too much, he basically wins the war but loses the peace because the terms are so harsh that it breeds resentment. And then that fans the flames of discontent to the point where these nations feel so humiliated that they are inclined to go back to war to try and level the balance back and create a a stability, a balance of power in Europe that isn't so heavily swayed Mm. in France's favour. And Britain, of course, did not want one power to rule the entirety of Europe, which is ironic considering they are basically the world at the time. But Europe, God forbid that one country would rule pretty much the entire continent. But we have to talk about some of the famous battles, of course, and it's what this episode is mainly about. And that is, of course, I want to begin at the Battle of Trafalgar. Ah, yes, Trafalgar. Um, Everybody goes, this is the battle that saved England. (laughs) No, very sorry. Um, Actually, by the point, Trafalgar should never have been fought. We'll get to that in a second. But by the time Trafalgar is being fought, actually, Napoleon's already packed up his army that was poised on the um, Channel coast of France, waiting for the opportunity to cross the Channel and invade. Um, And he's he's marched it out for what will become the Austerlitz campaign, which no doubt we'll talk about in due course. Trafalgar should never have been fought for a very simple reason. And that is that there was meant to be a change of commander. So a new commander is being sent down to replace Villeneuve, who's gone on this very long campaign trying to outwit Nelson, sails the, um, (laughs) excuse me, the the French fleet all the way from um, the Med over to the West Indies and back again, um, gets chased there and back by Nelson, but gets he's forced to divert um, towards Cadiz. And he's in port. He then hears through the grapevine that Napoleon's lost his rag about the fact that Villeneuve hasn't managed to get the um, French med fleet up to the English Channel, where they can take on the English Channel fleet, completely separate fleet to the one that Nelson commands. Um and as a result of that, he's got he's sending a new commander down. So Villeneuve's bright idea is to sail away from this problem. So he gets the fleet, he sails out, he gets cornered by Nelson, and he loses the Battle of Trafalgar. Obviously, Nelson dies in the process. Um, it's it's a hugely you could do a whole podcast, frankly, on Trafalgar itself, mm. but it is um, a hugely famous naval loss for France. It breeds some resentment within mm. Spain because it's a Franco-Spanish fleet. So the, the Spanish are dragged into this <coughs> as well. But even if Villeneuve had won at Trafalgar, it wouldn't have changed the fact that the British still have the Channel Fleet, which is the biggest. It's designed for home defence. And until Napoleon defeats the Channel Fleet, he can't buy the time to get his troops across the Channel for an invasion of Great Britain anyway. I gotta ask you about another movie, of course. I'm not sure you know which one I'm talking about right now. This that is, of course, Master and Commander. How accurately did they portray naval warfare at the time of Napoleon? I love Master and Commander because it spends a lot of time trying to get the little things right. 
And by doing that, it actually has a reasonably authentic feel, probably as authentic as you can get in a film about what more life than is Ridley like Scott. on board. Yes, far, far <laughs> more the, than Ridley Scott, because Ridley Scott's attitude seemingly is I'm going to make this the way I want to make it, which you can understand mm. from a film creation perspective. But there is a happy medium and you can focus on getting the little bits right yeah. in order to create that more authentic experience. Now, Master and Commander has the advantage of not telling a real story. It's actually a mishmash of a number of the mm. um, books on the, the of the Aubrey and Maturin series. So it, if you were a purist and wanted to see, you know, book one in its entirety, then then you would probably look at Master and Commander and not be too happy. But... If you speak to anybody with a love of the Napoleonic era and of Master and Commander, by and large, they turn around and say that Master and Commander is one of the best um, Napoleonic films ever produced. Um, Mm. And it just got very unlucky, I feel, in that it came out the same year as Pirates of the Caribbean 1. And so people had kind of had their sort of piratey, boaty fix for that year. And so it flopped at the box office. Mm. But it still remains a classic among history buffs, of course. It, it really does. Um, they, they fo- as I say, they focus on getting the little things right. They even sent, yeah. um, oh, who's the guy who plays Maturin? Paul Bettany, to the leading expert on Napoleonic surgery. <laughs> and, and that guy then taught him how mm. they would have handled the instruments wow. for the surgery scenes. So that he is kind of manipulating those various tools in the way they would have done during the period and it's those little things that therefore mean that somebody like me can look at this and firstly love the story love the drama love the action but also appreciate that attention to detail Mm. and of course we have to move on because we don't have too much time unfortunately so let's just move on to one of the more famous and we have to talk about alexander and and napoleon napoleon and napoli as i call him about the famous bridge meeting, uh, the boat meeting, sorry. But let's talk about the Battle of Austerlitz and let's get it right out right away. There was no ice nonsense as we've seen in the clip that has been shared. There was, that's all fiction. Again, it's not accurate. Yeah, it's fish ponds. Um, it's it's not um, this great sort of vast <laughs> lake that, you know, it, part of the issue is that the trailer gives the indication that um, the entire strategy at Auslitz hangs on the lakes now we've seen a what i'm told is a shorter version of the um the, the full battle in the, in the two minute clip that's been released and i hope that that's the case because and I, and I think that probably is the case because some of the editing doesn't quite hang together in this two minute version that we've seen um but the 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 premise of Auslitz is to feign weakness to throw a massive dummy, sucker his opponent into attacking him, and then shatter the entire army. So mm. Napoleon begins by occupying the Pratzen Heights um, before the battle even starts. Then he comes off the Pratzen Heights and adopts another position and enables his enemy to take this dominant point overlooking his army. And you go, well, why the hell would he do that? Mm. He then continues to feign weakness by having a very weak right flank. That's where he wants the Austrians and Russians to attack him, weakening their position that they've occupied on the Pratzen Heights so that he can then retake it himself. Mm. This entire plan um, is then reinforced by the fact that he's sending envoys, raising the prospect of peace negotiations, creating this idea 
that he doesn't want to fight a battle. Mm. Then the next day, it dawns. It's very, very foggy. But as the fog clears, it's very apparent that the Austrians are coming down off the centre, off the Pratzen Heights, to go and attack this deliberately weakened right flank. But the point about Napoleon is that he has reinforcements on the way. So Third Corps um, arrives just mm. in the nick of time. And again, to, to an analogy, that kind of reminds me of the Game of Thrones. That kind of reminds me of the Battle of Winterfell a little bit when they come in with the battle in the last minute. So it kind of, again, it kind of reminds, reminds me of that, that scene a little bit, though. Uh, I, I guess, kind of, in the sense... But then John doesn't know that the reinforcements yeah. are coming. That's, that That's fair thing. enough. Um, and also those those reinforcements do seem to sort of teleport there yeah. instantaneously, which is slightly problematic from a logistics perspective, but we won't yeah. go there. Um, That's another episode for another podcast. It, it is. <laughs> it really is. Um, the, the military strategy as shown in Game of Thrones. Um, but yeah, back to, to Auslitz. So with the, the centre, <laughs> the Austrian centre weakened, Napoleon then launches his main assault with Saul's four, fourth corps and shatters the Austrian mm. centre, an Austrian-Russian centre, retakes the Pratzen Heights, manages to also fend off the attack on the right flank. So he's shattered the centre the, the uh, on the right flank, he's held and then pushed the um, Austrians back. You do get some of these guys trying to recreat, retreat across frozen ponds, and yes, there are some artillery units who fire over um, onto the ice to break that ice. Horses fall through, but Napoleon had the lakes drained and they found two bodies. Napoleon then spun this in his own propaganda to make it seem like huge numbers of Austrians, literally thousands, drowned. So the version that we are getting in the Ridley Scott film is actually Napoleon's own propaganda parroted mm-hmm. back to us. And and it is reinforcing that kind of mythology. Mm. Now I want to mention because you should absolutely read this book, because of course I'm not often what's in what is in this book that I'm about to mention is about Napoleon and the Geran. Alexander the First biography, uh, one of them, I believe she's French, Marie Pierre Ray, she mentioned that a lot of the Russian soldiers and generals they blame because Alexander was there, of course, and we'll get to the peace treaty in a second. But they kind of blame Alexander that he was in the way for the soldiers. That that's one of the reasons they lost us. That he was in the way, according to his biographer, um, that he was should shouldn't have been there. Absolutely right. Um, Kutuzov doesn't want to fight. Kutuzov, Kutuzov is the leading um, Russian general during this period. Very experienced, um, very skillful commander. Um, and he he thinks it's the wrong call. He thinks the better call is to pull back and wait for a better opportunity. And he's overruled by Alexander, who thinks he has a better eye for the situation and thinks that um, Kachusov is is basically kind of running scared. It's not the case. Kachusov is just more conscious of the danger that Napoleon poses um, and is willing to kind of factor that into his considerations. So, yeah. Um, against the advice of one of his better commanders, Alexander mm. decides to fight at Austerlitz and then suffers the consequences. But the Russians do live to fight another day. That's um, welcome they back managed, to, of course. Yeah, they managed to pull back at least some elements of their army. Um, but the Austrians 
they they end up suing for peace. But then we get to Jena and Auerstadt, the War of the Fourth Coalition, the following year, where the Prussians look at um, the reorganization of Central Europe along French lines, dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, I wanted to add go... a little footnote to the dissolution, if you will, on, on the Holy Roman Empire. And this goes back to Joseph II and his late biographer, Derek Bales, the late Professor Bales, he argues that Joseph II wanted to abolish the Holy Roman Empire because he kind of found it a pain in the ass a bit, because, but it, it, it didn't happen, of course. But his dream, as his biographer, Bales Bales argues, it kind of came through with Napoleon abolishing because it was kind of a thorn in the side for the Austrians at that point. I think the thing you have to bear in mind is that the way in which some of these things are done often matters. So the fact that it's done in the wake of a crushing defeat for the Austrians in a dictated peace treaty does basically emasculate the Austrian Empire. It kind of shows, look, the Austrians aren't the dominant force in Europe anymore. France is the Mm. dominant force in Europe, and that in turn breeds resentment. But it's also done without any negotiation, (laughs) excuse me, or, or meaningful consultation with the Prussians, who are also a rising force and a significant power within Central Europe. And they look at this and go, well, this is not okay. This is a humiliation. So they declare war in 1806 when they are not even remotely ready for it. Um, and then you get they're the not ready for the great. Let's put it that way. No, they're, they're really not. Um, and they get absolutely humiliated at Jena and Auerstadt. But it is Davu who is the key there. So he uses a single corps to fend off the vast majority of the Austrian army in his own battle whilst Napoleon thinks that he's found the entirety of the, the um, Prussian army, refuses to send Davu reinforcements, famously remarks "Your to a, a messenger, your marshal is seeing double. And it's only after the battle that the, the realisation comes to light that Davu has held the line and beaten almost all of the Prussian army with one corps whilst Napoleon has been faffing around with the remainder of it, targeting a single um, Prussian corps. So it's, 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 this is, Yenner and Aristotle is much more a story of Davout's success than mm. Napoleon's, but we associate it with Napoleon because of the Napoleonic propaganda. Mm. And I want to go back to the famous bridge meeting between Alexander and, and Napoleon, because at this point, it, it should bring up as well, and you mentioned this a few times, that Josephine, was beyond the age of getting children. And he needed to divorce Josephine because he wanted a new dynasty in France that would rule France as his heirs do. And without heirs, that's simply not possible. His brother, he, obviously his brothers was, would not succeed him. So that's one, one of the reasons needed. And one of the really things that come up in in the British Peace Treaty, of course, is the that his new marriage deal, deal that I want though. That, that's a little bit later. So that's yeah. following the Austrian defeat. So it's the yeah. Austrian princess, Marie-Louise. She's 18 at yeah. the time. And as well, part of well, the... Well, she famously put both in the order of Corsica. She's been raised in Austria. Most of her life has seen her nation mm. at war with France. Um, she's been steeped in anti-Napoleonic pro-Austrian propaganda all of her life. And then she suddenly gets off, gets married off to this guy. Um, as a, a pawn in a political game, because Napoleon is looking mm. for not only somebody who can produce an heir for him, 
but also um, he's looking for legitimacy. And by combining his dynasty with an established Mm -hmm. dynasty in the form of the Austrians, he thinks he can acquire that because his offspring are therefore going to be part of that whole um, other house in Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, he is considering a Russian princess, but of course, I don't think Alexander is seriously considered it. And then again, Talleyrand, he kind of bullies Alexander a little bit for it, and they almost use him, but Talleyrand again comes in, and then again, this is according to his biographer, in Marie, Marie Pierre Ray, who claims that Talleyrand tells Alexander that he has an Austrian princess in mind, that, and that kind of back that kind of goes to make Alexander change his mind that no, he's not going to marry my and one of, one of my princesses, you know. Um, there are a lot of movements back and forth within this. Mm. Um, so the, the meeting that we're talking about is the, the Treaty of Tilsit, which takes place on a raft yeah. um, in the middle of the river. Napoleon thinks he plays a blinder and he thinks that he kind of woos Tsar Alexander. I think Tsar Alexander views the whole thing quite differently um, and sees Napoleon as, as somebody that he's got to make peace with, um, particularly in the wake of Friedland. And so his is perhaps a more reluctant, um, is more reluctant in his acceptance of the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, the terms that are agreed there. Uh, it does bring peace. Um, but only until the Austrians um, kick off in in eighteen oh nine. So you're talking well, and then of course you've got the the situation in in Portugal and Spain. But part of the issue with it all is that it creates this sense of security for Napoleon, uh, and and it's a full sense of security, and it creates this impression within his mind that he can dictate the economic policy of Europe through the continental system. You can understand why, because at this point, the only enemy left is Britain. Um, And so you would look to Mm -hmm. try and and deal with that last enemy and have a what you might call a Pax Napoleonica, a a Napoleonic peace in Europe. But it doesn't transpire that way. And. I want to add that. that. So that's, of course, that's the thing we have to talk about is the divorce and the marriage with Marie Louise. Because she does, like we said, she called him the older, of course, because she was brought up believing he was this monstrous. And again, we come back to the older, of course, when he is on Santanella, of course. But again, she does seem to eventually warm up with Napoleon and Josephine, of course, the divorced. What happens with Josephine after the divorce? It does generally seem to send her money still, but what happens with her after the divorce and the marriage with Marie-Louise? So Josephine is moved. She lives the rest of her life in relative comfort. Um, She is moved to an estate outside of Paris. Napoleon does periodically go and say hi for for all intents and purposes. Um, There is this sort of enduring question of, does Napoleon still love Josephine? And in some respects, I think, yes, he probably did in his own way. Um, he actually, When his son is born, um, he actually takes his son out to for Josephine to see, which is mm. a, a bit of an odd one in kind of showing, mm. look, this is what's happened since. And this is kind of like in your face me. to your ex kind of thing. It is a bit. Um, 
but maybe in a, another sense he's kind of i don't know i don't really understand the motivations behind it mm. um but maybe it's a kind of a pride thing look i i've i've finally achieved this and mm. you know be happy for me i'm not i'm not quite sure i can't think what what josephine must be thinking actually not father or son for you but but hey you show me do this another broad who you know father or son for you so you know I mean, he, it wasn't his first son, so we'd have illeg- illegitimate yeah. um, kids before the breakup of the relationship. And it was that that told him that Josephine mm. was the one who couldn't have kids. Yeah. Because before this point, he thought that he was the issue and that he was the one who couldn't mm. have the kids. Um, so it's it's a, a difficult relationship. It's hard not to mm. feel for Josephine. It's also very hard not to feel for Marie-Louise, kind of thrust into this yeah. situation um she she is literally sold off she is part of the price of peace for austria um and in her own way yeah i think she learns to have an affection for napoleon um it's it's not the sort of the romance story that we associate with um napoleon and josephine but um I mean they have a kid together and and that creates mm. a whole series of very complex emotions um in that relationship which you have to be aware of um mm. but of course when napoleon's exiled to elba uh, and then subsequently returns in 1815 marie louise doesn't go to join him and mm. and prevents napoleon from seeing his son which is quite a blow mm. Before we go there, of course, there's something I want to talk about. As we talked about, the, the peace treaty with Russia does not last very long. And this is where, and you see this in the trailer as well. And I want to add that this was, episode was, by the way, recorded before the movie came out. So the movie, if you're watching this after, there is a lot of speculation because we haven't seen the movie yet, of course, because it's not out yet. But I want to talk about, and you see this in the trailer as well, the burning of Moscow. So let's talk but what is perhaps one of the most interesting parts that I find in of Napoleon's march on Moscow? It's it's the beginning of the end, ultimately, mm. um, and it it shouldn't have been really. Um, so he assembles one of the biggest armies that Europe has ever seen at this point in time. So about half a million men, um, and he marches it into Russia with the aim of doing what he's done so many times before, secure that overwhelming, crushing victory, then force Alexander to sit down at the negotiating table again and secure another peace, um, and therefore re-establish peace in Europe for however long. And once he's done that, then maybe he can go and deal with Spain and Portugal. It doesn't work out that way, because by this point, people are learning. They know that Napoleon is a dangerous animal. And so the Russian strategy becomes a an attempt to basically inflict huge damage to themselves, but not give Napoleon what he wants. So they adopt this scorched earth policy. It's not the first time scorched earth has been used during this conflict. Um, Wellington actually uses it in Portugal during one point, um, but we don't have time for a, a, a deep dive on the Peninsula War. Um, and the idea is that they will keep retreating and retreating and retreating and retreating and not fighting Napoleon if they can avoid it, because they know that face him in the open field and he'll do what he always does, which is crush them. Eventually, mm. they reach a point where they do have to fight. Borodino 
it's a a bloody stalemate of a battle but the in effect napoleon wins because the excuse me the the russians pull back and they enable napoleon to take moscow but the trouble is he should never have been that deep into russia anyway because supplies are a massive issue for the yeah. french from day one and let's remember that campaign. railroads was not invented yet, so exactly. it's going to be even harder for supplies to arrive. Everything is being moved either on the back of a person or by horse and cart. And if you've got half a million men on the march with their horses, with the baggage, with their battalion wives, with camp followers and all the rest of it, it is a horde. You don't have a bad fed. time. It, it's not going to go well. And, and it didn't. Um, and if you read the accounts, you can see that the the French are hemorrhaging men as they go into Russia. They lose more men going into Russia than they do coming out. It's not the winter. Doesn't he lose like half? Doesn't he lose like half his army just by entering Russia? More or than. Something? More than. More people die um, as a result of the march in. It's not the Russian winter that destroys. Uh, Napoleon's mm. army. It's actually the Russian summer and the supply issues. Um, it's it's hor- horrendous, but they occupy Moscow, which the Russians burn down again, scorched earth, huge, what we'd call self-immolation, um, mm. kind of almost like self-harm, but on a, a national scale. Napoleon realises that there aren't the supplies to last out the winter. He keeps trying to persuade Tsar Alexander to come negotiate with him. And the Tsar abjectly refuses, mm. but doesn't tell Napoleon that he refuses. He just doesn't bother responding. Mm. Which I want leaves... to add as well that doesn't they release lunatics from lunatic asylums and in oh, they, the they open the prisons as well to to help with the 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 looting and the general carnage in the place. Um, but because he keeps Napoleon waiting, and because Napoleon's now stuck so far out on a limb and hasn't stopped at Vilna, mm. as was at one point the, the plan, it means that he's stuck there, no prospect of supplies. If he stays, he dies. Mm. Now, when he does make the, the call, ultimately it's a call that's made way too late. It should have been made a few weeks before. The The snows start to fall, and then we've got that classic image that we have of the... Uh, Russian retreat he tries actually to not go back the way he came he tries to go south to Mm. the region sort of around what is now Ukraine in order to spend the winter there in a place that is well supplied um, and then plan another campaign in the the next year but at the battle Mm. of that's easy for me to say Marilaya Slavets um, the the Russians bar the road south mm. and stop Napoleon from being able to head south as he'd planned. And so he has to go back the way he came, which wasn't supplying his men adequately on the way in. It sure as hell isn't going to supply them adequately on the way out. Now it's worth saying the Russians also suffer horrifically during this because they're experiencing mm. the same weather conditions. They're also going through the same country. So supply is a huge problem, but of the huge half a million plus reinforcements actually taking up to something like 600,000, maybe 650,000 who went into Russia over the course of that campaign, 10% Mm. make it out. 
Napoleon suffers 90% casualties and it shatters that image of invincibility that he has. Um, I'd rather ask, why did he not march on St. Petersburg? Why did he choose Moscow? Wouldn't it make more sense considering St. Petersburg is the capital that is it's not Moscow that is capital that it would be a more blow to go against St. Petersburg? Do we know why he chose not to? That is a great question. I don't know the answer, and I should. Sorry, I, I can't answer that one for <laughs> you. Um, I mean, yeah, you stumped me. But it would make more sense to me that it should go for St. Petersburg and not Moscow. It's even closer to the, not as far inland, and it's narrow sea. It has, you know, it has a strategic reason, I think, and it's the capital of the Russian Empire as well. So it would make more sense to me to go to St. Petersburg and not Moscow. I mean, it's Napoleon. He'll have had his reasons. Yeah. Um, I <laughs> wonder if the the rationale is that um, is partly kind of dictated by military events. You know, where are the armies that you're mm. trying to strike? Where can you go and where can't you go? Um, because there's not just one Russian army. There are a series of yeah. Russian armies floating around during this period. Yeah. Um, and Napoleon's kind of trying to wield this huge force but in a detached way. So we've got some detachments up in the north, some um, in kind of the, the centre and, and the mm. south. And so I would imagine that he gets drawn because he's he's trying to chase the um, the Russians. His aim actually isn't Moscow. His aim is the Russian army. Shatter mm. the Russian army, and then I can get peace. Mm. So I'd imagine that's probably what goes into it all. Another footnote I would like to add, of course, during the peace with after Auschwitz, Tsar Alexander I invades Finland, and again, this is where we get comment Bernadotte comes in because, as you know, the Swedes stay throughout the other king, and Bernadotte becomes king because Napoleon and Bernadotte doesn't go along quite well, so Bernadotte, so he kind of wants to get rid of Bernadotte and says, okay, you can have the one because the Swedes wanted a French French king. And then Napoleon says, okay, why not take Bernadotte? And they hope in Bernadotte that they can reconquer Finland. But that's after the Napoleonic Wars, because Denmark chose Napoleon Napoleonic side because England not bombarded their capital. Yeah, yeah. And we why and would you join England? Because, yeah, why would you join somebody who just bombarded your back capital? It's a strategic reason. And of course, that when it loses the war because of the Shield Treaty, Norway goes to Sweden and we made a two-part episode about this as well where we talk more about Bernadotte's rule and which I would highly recommend listening to because it's a really good episode but anyway let's go back and I do have another question to ask you of course what did you think about the war piece and if you have read it and how accurately does it portray Napoleonic era it looks great um so on that sense I, I kind of like it but you've got to bear in mind that it is a story and so i approach war and peace much more in terms of how well does it kind of tell uh so if, you, if you're talking about the costume drama you know how well is it true yeah. to the book um tolstoy read widely but we've always got to be careful that you know it's a story and and there's that danger of accepting mm. Tolstoy's account at face value in the same way that there's that mm. danger of accepting Victor Hugo's account of Waterloo and Les Miserables at face mm. value. And so you get things that are picked up from these books that people mm. think they know about the battle, but in reality are total myths. Mm. Of course, so I'm sorry to say we are running out of time, so we just have to talk about 
thought did Battle of Leipzig and of course his banishment to Elba as well before we joined in the last hundred days on Santinena. So we have to I'm sorry for rushing a little bit, and we will come back in more detail on the Napoleonic War in the future, but let's talk about Leipzig, Elba and Santinena, of course. Yeah, so this is the end game fundamentally. Um initially it's it's just Russia and Prussia who kind of look at this and go the clock is ticking now is the moment to strike. So Prussia's gone through a whole phase of um, reorganizing its army, but there is huge resentment in Prussia at the humiliation that they experienced in 1806 through the the campaign that led to Jena and Auerstadt and the sort of dismemberment of chunks of their nation. So there's this, you can see the sort of the seeds that Napoleon sows that then come back to bite him when he starts to look weak. So in the early part of the um, the eighteen thirteen campaign, Napoleon does remarkably well. Um, he manages to raise a fresh army using French conscripts because this is a period of conscription within France. Uh, but it's inexperienced, and that has an impact. Um, the, the trouble is that, as I said, the Allies have learnt how to deal with Napoleon, and that's that. They have a, a big sit down and work out. People learn from their mistakes, don't you? I know, staggering. Um, but I, I mean, you've got to. They took a long time to learn their lesson. Let's be fair. Um, but what they agree is that their strategy will be: if Napoleon is facing us, we will withdraw. If Napoleon isn't facing us, then we will stand and fight. And so you get this situation of a lot of manoeuvre, where the Allies are looking for fights with Napoleon's subordinates but not with Napoleon himself, because they don't trust their quality and their skills against the big guy. Now, there is a, an interlude in 1813. There is a ceasefire, which both sides need, quite frankly, to kind of pause and rearm. Um, and by the end of it, the Austrians have decided to come back into the fray. So now you've got three big continental nations once again at war with Napoleonic France. They effectively corner Napoleon at Leipzig. At this point, they are willing to fight him for one very simple reason. They have overwhelming advantage in numbers. So hundreds of thousands of men fight what is known as the Battle of the Nations. It's the largest battle in Europe until the advent of the First World War. And to massively simplify it with one eye on the time, Napoleon loses, um, has to try and pull back over a single bridge, um <laughs> the bridge gets blown too early so chunks of his army are trapped on the wrong side people try and swim across the river but it's cold it's um autumn by this point and many of them drown um and it again kind of shatters napoleon's control over central europe so now he's lost two major campaigns 1814 dawns he raises another army again tries to defend france he is often peace. Uh, if I may say so, we spoke, speak about this in uh, Romanov as episode part two as well, where the, yes, he raises another army, but this is not a grand army that walked into Russia. These are inexperienced soldiers that just basically have um, left the non experience in combat. So it's, uh, yes, while they may be huge in numbers, they are inexperienced and they are not the same grand army that Napoleon began with. So there's several factors here that we have to think about as well. There are, and ultimately that takes its toll. Um, eventually it's very clear that Napoleon isn't going to win this. Um, Marmont defects 
um, because he knows that it's no longer within France's interest to keep fighting. Mm. It's just going to tear the country apart. Um, so Napoleon is forced by his own marshals to resign. They turn around and say, look, the game is up. You know, we, mm. we can't follow you. We can't keep fighting. Um, Napoleon is then exiled to Elba, mm. um, an island in the Mediterranean, where the idea is that he'll have a very small force of a thousand men, so his own little mini army, a very small navy, a couple of ships, very small ones. Um, and initially, he seems to like it. He sets about kind of trying to reorganize mm. things, education system and all the rest of it. On but again, fun is a problem as well, because it does run out of funds to support what they want to do for He does. I mean, he doesn't get paid, in fairness. Um, he's meant to get a very hefty payment from the King of France, which then doesn't materialise. Then the Allies start falling out, um, and he sees this, uh, particularly with the good disgruntlement within France itself, at the restored Bourbon monarchy, as an opportunity to come back and re-establish himself. So he attempts that. That leads to the Hundred Days. The other nations in Europe look at this and go, no, we kicked you off the throne once before. We're not just going to sit back and let you reoccupy this throne, regather your strength and then come after us with all of your vengeance and desire for revenge. So they declare war very specifically on Napoleon himself and not on France. Part of the reason they can't declare war on France is because they don't recognize Napoleon as the rightful ruler. Mm of france as far as they're concerned there is a rightful ruler of france who's been usurped by napoleon that then leads to the waterloo campaign you could do a, an episode just on the waterloo campaign yeah. quite frankly and um ultimately napoleon the hundred loses. days as well of course is an episode in itself it is indeed um napoleon ultimately loses is forced to resign um for, abdicate for a second time and is exiled to St. Helena, where he dies in 1821, not of poisoning mm. by the British government, despite what people claim, but from stomach cancer. Mm. And there is a bit problematic with his, with his banishment to St. Helena as well. Yeah, it's unfortunate we don't have time to go into that, but thank you so much for coming on. Before you go, do you have anything you want to promote on social media where you... Unfortunately, Zach has to go. He has a BBC interview that he has to do because, of course, yeah, well, that's more important, understandably. But, I'm very uh, sorry, I'm folks. Not... Um, it's no, because no, I've no, been no, ill no. over the last few days, yeah. so I've had to kind of reshuffle everything before I fly yeah, up to Spain. That's, um, that's quite fine. Uh, I'm going to pause the podcast for a bit, and I'm going to finish up for you. And, of course, and then you can leave, and we have more time to discuss this later. So I'm going to pause the podcast for a little bit, and then I'll be right back and to finish the episode. Yeah, so unfortunately, that has to leave. So, but I'm going to finish up the episode. I'm going to try my best to finish up the episode. So again, so the problem with Santanella is that Napoleon wasn't really a prisoner of war. He wasn't, so they didn't know what quite was it, what it was. And it, again, this comes up in this discussion when he dies in the 1920s. But again, I want to thank everyone so much for listening to this podcast. I hope you liked it. And if, you can find Zach on Twitter and a CW. That's me just genuinely a second. I'm so sorry about this. We had to end rather roughly. I normally don't do this, but let's try. CW White History is Zach's Twitter. So absolutely following there. He gives some really good insight into, into what Napoleon movie and Napoleon, of course. And he shares some really cool stuff there. He is on the Napoleon channel on YouTube as well. So make sure to check him out there. The Napoleonic War podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
so you can listen to the talk there as well. I would highly recommend that you go follow him there. Now, we are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. I'm sorry, I feel a little bit awkward doing this alone because I don't normally do this. And this this way, as I said, but you, if you're on Spotify, please give us five stars. And uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a review. That would help us out a lot. If you are on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. We will, of course, go into more detail on Napoleon in a future episode, but this was hopefully a quite a good overview of Napoleon himself. So hopefully, if you go into the movie, you'll have a better, better understanding of the man and the myth himself. Thank you for listening. My name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.